0: Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld.
1: Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture.
0: Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly whenever your case is on hold.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, episode number seven. We're excited to have all of you back. I'm Antonia Chen, and I am a simple arthroplasty surgeon.
0: You're downplaying it. I'm Andrew Schoenfeld. I'm a deputy editor and orthopedic research consultant to LVMH, Maybach Music Group, and Vandalay Industries. Those are my disclosures.
1: I wish I had that list of disclosures. We just need reams and reams of disclosures. To be glorious. So these are opinions are our own, including the words coming out of our mouth right now, and they do not represent JBJS or its editorial board or its staff members. We're also sponsored by the Miller Review Course. If you need to get your Miller, if you need to get your review course on, Miller is the way to go and subscribe for the podcast. Go listen to some past episodes. We're building and growing, and there's always some more interesting things coming up. So don't forget to subscribe. So you get the alerts for this podcast. And without further ado, let's go for the first one. We're going to go for headlines. Dr. Schoenfeld, can you tell me about the economic impact of work productivity following lower extremity trauma?
0: Yes, uh, this was my headline. This is by uh, Levy and colleagues, and there is an infographic. So uh, be sure to check that out. This is a very interesting study. That's why I uh, selected it for a headline. They took, uh, first off, this is a group of scholars who, um, who have been working in the area of prospective research for lower extremity trauma for probably two decades, I would wager. They all contributed to three lower extremity trauma studies the Fix It, the Outlet, and the TAOS studies. And then this work here took the subjects from those three multi center studies and combined them to create a Markov model that accumulated hours lost over time due to loss of employment, absenteeism, et cetera, in the setting of lower extremity trauma. And uh, they ended up having 857 patients included in this Markov model. So it is a simulation. We're talking about individuals under the age of 65, 18 to 64 here. And the average number of productive hours of work lost was uh, close to 1,760 1,760 hours per person, as probably expected. Older individuals had more lost productivity. Males uh, had more lost productivity. Those with a physically demanding job, and then the most severe injuries: uh, amputation, type three B fractures, and type three pelon and ankle fractures. There, it is a, it is a simulation. It's a Markov model for those who are interested cheat codes. You want to do a Markov study, look through these methods. It really lays things out very nicely that you could take their methodology and apply it to, to your work. Uh, I think that that's very helpful that way. There are real limitations, though. Uh, if you look at the discussion section, they have two full paragraphs of limitations, which you know, is appropriate in a, in, a, in a study like this. There's a maxim about uh, you know modeling and simulations that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think the utility here is really showing the impact of severe lower extremity trauma on patient functionality and capacity to return to work. And that's really what they're focused on is their take-home message. The, the last sentence uh, being the cost of lost productivity should be considered when evaluating outcomes and that kind of, for a second, I had to think about that. That's probably the only part that I would really say is, you know, sort of on hold because it's like, what exactly are you guys meaning here? <laughs> I don't think they're being super clear. But what I think they're getting at is that traditional cost effectiveness analyses, the considerations that go into those generally are not favorable for lower extremity procedures like this when you have very expensive costs of care. Uh, We did a study on spinal metastases. There's a limited event horizon or or limited functional returns. You have to take care of these patients. They have devastating injuries and the traditional cost effectiveness assessments with the, you know, adjusted qualities and the thresholds of 100 or $150,000 per quality, they they don't generally play out as well. And so I think that that's, if I can infer, that's what they're trying to get at with this point. At the same time, this is really well done research. It's a fair number of patients from multiple different prospective studies. So definitely check it out. And I also want to emphasize to the group and our readers and listeners, a cautionary note against research nihilism. I think of course here we're talking about the pluses and minuses of all this research, but at the end of the day, it's being published here. It is high quality research. And it's easy to fall into the trap, and I see a lot of trainees do this. We'll have journal clubs and they'll be like, well, why was this even published? Or why, why is this even relevant? This shouldn't even, I can't even understand. I mean, you hear that more often than you hear, wow, that was a great study. I totally get why it was published here. And so it's very easy, of course, to, to point out you know, some issues and, and it's appropriate to point those out, but it shouldn't lead to research nihilism where you're essentially like, no research is good, it's all bad, it's all flawed. And again, not to belabor the Plato's cave analogy, but I would just bring us back to that to kind of set the table. We're talking about various iterations and stages of taking us to an understanding of what is a a true concept that in many ways on individual parameters would not be essentially knowable. So don't be a nihilist. If we hearken back to the 1990s documentary of LA Life, The Big Lebowski, Uli is a nihilist, he's exhausted, he's in the pool, and then he ends up beaten up with his ear bit off at the end. So it's a cautionary tale. Don't be a research nihilist. Take the the research for what it's worth, point out the appropriate limitations, and use those to contextualize how you're going to apply them to practice.
1: Weren't there boxers that had their ears bitten off before?
0: Well, uh, Evander Holyfield, yeah, Yeah, but he's not a nihilist.
1: But it's a different type of, of torture, so just don't. It's like the Mike Tyson of research, so be careful with that. There you go. <laughs> bring it to a modern day context just to
0: be safe. Right.
1: All right. And from a practical standpoint, health economics is a growing field. So Markov models, and these are key take-home take-home messages when it comes to methodology that people use more and more going forward. Uh, more and more that modeling is happening, so that's important, and we're seeing that even in our like daily news, honestly. So that's a big thing. So my headline news is on aspirin being an effective prophylaxis for v- venous thromboembolism or VTE in ambulatory patients with femoral neck fractures undergoing total hip arthroplasty for femoral neck fractures, right? So that's the key factor here. And it's not total hip arthroplasty, it's hip arthroplasty, so hemiarthroplasties and total hip arthroplasties. So it's a very relevant and pertinent topic, I would say, right? Because we have been using aspirin more and more for more elective procedures. For example, that's my go-to regimen is aspirin 81 BID for my hip and knee patients, which is a big change from even when we were training, right? When we were training, oh, for sure. coumadin for everyone, you know, we had to chase or, all the cameras. Or Agrinox. Camera <laughs> any sort of ox or pill or follow-up and anything. So aspirin is a game changer. So the real question is, can we use it in our femoral neck fracture? So this is a study that was looking over three institutions over a long time span. So it was 2008 to 2018. And of course, it's a retrospective study. So those who received aspirin for those who didn't receive aspirin, it wasn't a randomized trial. It wasn't selected that way. So the authors tried to control for that using um, what they use is a VTE risk calculator. So that was actually reference nine. And if you um, go to that VTE calculator appropriately, it, it takes a lot of items into account that have to do with VTE. So like anemia, coagulation deficiency, previous VTE, um, even weight loss, those type of things are all part of this calculator, which is important. But one of the things that's actually part of this calculator, which is interesting, is not primary total hip arthroplasty. So, if you actually look at it, they show that this is out of zero to like 980 points. You can get a lot of points from this, but one of them is not primary THA, and that's 43 points in of itself. So be very careful because the actual method that they're using for the VTE calculator is actually a circular argument because this is not a primary total hip. We're already using it for femoral neck fractures. So it's something that they keep in mind when it comes to using it, because what they did is they actually used the um, VTE risk calculator for matching as opposed to other factors that could delineate between potentially a total arthroplasty and a hemiarthroplasty, for example, preceding arthritis in a hip again for femoral neck fractures or life expectancy or ambulatory status or things like Parkinson's disease or alcoholism, which have an increased risk of dislocation, which you might be pushed to use a hemiarthroplasty. So those factors are not necessarily in this VT calculator. That said, when they did do matching and they did actually pick numbers, they didn't, Take the high-risk patients. They only took the standard-risk patients, which is probably a more applicable population, where you're more likely to use aspirin as opposed to other higher, you know, DOACs or other medications. So the abstract reported all the numbers they used, not the actual numbers they used. So the actual numbers they used were 361 patients who underwent a total hip arthroplasty and 298 patients who underwent hemiarthroplasty. So those are the patients that I would report because that's what this is based on: the standard-risk patients. And their conclusion does state that they would recommended using aspirin in standard risk patients. And they use symptomatic VTE as an endpoint, which is important because you don't want to have a patient who has an asymptomatic VTE because it's just not as meaningful an endpoint. So endpoint was meaningful. They did consider standard risk patients. So it's a pretty narrow pool of individuals that they say aspirin is safe in, but in terms of, you know, bleeding um, difficulties or, you know, we all kind of balance between, you know, clots and hematoma. And in this case, there is a standard group of patients with femoral neck fractures where we can justify using aspirin. But you do just have to be careful from, I'd say, a methodological standpoint of taking this with a slight grain of salt, but it is useful for regular
0: practice. And this does continue kind of the burgeoning body of literature that really, at least as I see it, started with work that you and your colleagues were doing at Thomas Jefferson several years ago, published in JVJS, was a an option for uh, web-based longitudinal assessment, uh, Parvizian Cogs a couple of years back. And that's really what you know started this sea change and the frame shift, getting away from all of those anticoagulation chemoprophylaxis agents that we were training to use and, and you know changing the conversation to coming back to a simpler, less expensive drug with a lower complication profile. I think the points that you raised are entirely on board. It's really well done. My only kind of question from my end was that, you know, are we really seeing the, the, in this, as you said, it's, it's a, it's, it's a narrow window of patients that we're talking about and, and just the caution of not extrapolating that to individuals that would have other higher risk for whatever it might be. And then how well that VTE calculator, which does seem kind of complex is able to capture that.
1: Uh, another nice thing about that I have to admit because you know we're simple orthopods, there is an app for this VTE calculator. So that is available and that's actually very useful. And I will give a ton of credit to Jay Parvizzi for pushing the envelope. And especially when it comes to aspirin, There's, he always starts off talks by saying, I have no conflicts with aspirin. And it's true. It's a, it's a cheap drug, you know, it's, it's impossible to have conflicts with this. So he really has pushed the envelope in it. And there is an app that you can use to calculate it. So it makes it a little bit easier, which is nice. So it can be used a little more in a practical setting, but it is a very narrow set of patients. So over time, what I'd love to see is maybe see that broadened over time, but as a starting study, I think this is a good way to go. So, are you ready for your cases on hold? We're going for cases
0: on hold. Done. This is the part where we can uh, walk the same path but have on different shoes, live in the same building but have different views. You have a couple cars you don't get to use. Am I going first or are you going first?
1: Go for it, my friend, because this is a lot of stats and methodology dealing with a genomic. Very detailed approach.
0: Oh, yeah. You can't you can't get into genes without being super statistical, for sure. <laughs> uh, so this is risk of revision after arthroplasty associated with specific gene loci, a genome-wide association study of, I'm just going to say, SNPs uh, in 1,130 twins treated with arthroplasty. This is by Brueggemann and colleagues from Sweden. Uh, we talked in maybe the last episode or the previous one about there are certain types of studies that can only be done in certain places. You get these really long longitudinal follow-ups on patients from Mayo Clinic and the University of Iowa. You get these kinds of twin studies primarily from like the Scandinavian countries because they have, they have these long-standing registries uh, of twins that they've been following for decades and decades and decades. So this was 1,130 twins from the Swedish twin registry treated with total joints. And then they had close to 10 years of follow-up on these individuals. Uh, they identified those who had aseptic loosening, which was the primary, and then expanded it. They only really get about 20 more patients with the secondary outcome, which was any, any reason for revision. And then they did this very extensive single nucleotide polymorphisms, abbreviated SMPs, that's looking at, at areas on the genome that may be associated with increased risks of revision surgery. And they identified 12 unique SMPs. It's a 12 page article. There are whole pages dedicated to sort of the genome-wide analysis. It's really interesting. The the findings are are potentially important. I think it goes without saying a lot more work needs to be done to validate this. both on the small scale and the large scale. And I think the questions regarding the clinical application are really, I I don't have anything that's really on hold here. It's just more, it left me asking more questions than it provided me a solid grounding on where where things go from here. For example, um, and this is probably one of the, the more important points, they're relatively small numbers of revisions. They only have 75 uh, with the primary and then 94 on the secondary. If you look at table one, which is kind of their clinical and demographic table, they don't have that many other clinical factors that they're able to, to control for or address. Now, it's a registry study. It's a registry study where the focus is not even you know, joint replacement. It's not a joint replacement registry. It's the twin registry. So very limited... Comorbidities. They do have BMI, which is 23 in one group and 22 oh. in the other group. And if that doesn't give you pause for an American population, um, <laughs> then that's just another point where the risk factors for revision in this group may be drastically different from those in other groups. So that's one point number one. And then the second point I am a, uh, a vocational genealogist. So I are uh, really my, my mom has done a lot of gene stuff through 23andMe and Amazon, uh, not Amazon, but Ancestry.com and um, probably Amazon at some point going forward. And what we learned from this is that populations are not the same genetically. You can you know, send in your sample and they can figure out, oh, you know, you have a certain amount of ancestry from this area in Europe and it's Spain and Portugal versus the British Isles versus Scandinavia, which is kind of its own separate thing, right? And so the these may be single nucleotide polymorphisms that show some signal for this population, but they might not even be present in other populations aclo- across the globe, or even in uh, areas with more admixture or less ethno-national homogeneity. So I don't know if this extends beyond the Swedish population, in fact, since it was only conducted in Swedish patients, but, and here you go, avid researchers, although this is not something that anyone can do, but this kind of work needs to be examined. A lot of centers, our own, are collecting a lot of genome data. and, And I'm sure this is something that could be looked at in those contexts as well in a more representative cohort with broader national, racial, ethnic characteristics, which I think is, would be very important and also incredibly interesting.
1: I agree. Like it's cool to have twins. That's something that we're not good at, right? We don't aggregate that well, I guess, in our genome data. One of the things that I wrote to this is like, you know, what does this all mean? Question mark, question mark, right? One of the hard things for me looking at total joint replacements is they looked at some of the uh, markers that have to do with bone metabolism. Well, their hips and knees, they didn't separate it out and hips are mostly uncemented where bone metabolism probably needs a lot more because there's ingrowth versus knees, they're cemented mostly. So does that aseptic loosening really have to do with bone growth when there's cement present, which acts more as a grout, more than as a glue? And does that make a difference? So I'd love to see that separated out. Now, if they separate out, hips and knees, their numbers would be even tinier. So this has to be on a much bigger scale. I completely agree with it. Potentially, I'm just trying to think of, you know, the what's the next step or clinical relevance, things like that. And does it help with future screening? You know, do patients have a different blood type, you know, like a type B blood type, but i look at the ABO. Will that mean that you should undergo different fixation or different treatment or something like that? Um, but it's too early to tell, right? This is too tiny of a population to really pull something from it. It's an interesting first step and I'm glad it's in here. So it's a good springboard for other researchers to go into it. I completely agree. We need to go, you know, internationally bigger patients, different patients, you know, it's something that's more relevant. But looking specifically at the total joint patients, I would say is we have to be careful of types of, uh, I would separate also by um, procedure potentially as well.
0: Yeah. I I think at the end of the day, a lot of studies that, and it's not just specific to this particular work, but I I think about a lot of these prognostic studies that will come up with if you're a man, and if you're over the age of 65, and if you have a bone density of X, then you're at a higher risk of mortality after your hip fracture or right? And so it's sort of like, well, what do you do with that? And so you tell somebody who's a man over 65, oh, you're at a greater risk, but what, how does it change what you're doing, Right. And so, you know, oh, you have uh, three of the four SMP or three of the 12 SMPs here. You're probably at a greater risk of revision. We'll still do everything as we normally do because we don't know. <laughs> you can't, you, and, and especially in this case, because it's immutable, these immutable characteristics were telling patients where it's like, if you had a femoral neck fracture versus an intertrochanteric fracture, but they don't have an intertrochanteric fracture. They're like, talk about my thing. I don't care about the other thing.
1: <laughs> it's all about me. It's all about me. Show yeah. me the money. Little right. kid, Jr., right? Show me the <laughs> money. <laughs> it's what the focus is all about. So it's true. And and, and again, are you not going to undergo the total hip or the total knee replacement because of this increased risk of, you know, aseptic loosening? And the answer is probably this, no, you're going to do it. You're just going to know that it could be a potential problem. So...
0: Like it's a uh, Donny Brasco. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not my thing.
1: <laughs> exactly. I love it. Well, my question then to you in the toss-up of is
0: toss up time toss,
1: toss up. up. Is it is this your thing? The wider effect of mentor of Medicare mandatory bundled payment program on joint replacement outcomes, the analysis of patients with commercial insurance and Medicare Advantage by Kim et al. And it is also free for 30 days. So no excuse not to read it.
0: Yes, so everyone you should be checking this one out. Yeah. The, the concept is my thing. The message and the work that was done here, not not exactly my thing. So um, it's on it's, hold. It, is it on hold? Um, no, it's not on hold and it's not on hold because the point that they're making is is a valid point. I think that the construct, the narrative and the rationale here insights we've promised insights into like best practices to get your work in print right and i think one of the best practices that you can do is create a compelling rationale for why the work that you're presenting needs to be done why your study question is being asked and when that study question as is here is formulated in a in what we would call a straw person manner which is essentially does something that's going on over here, impact what's going on over there. Oh, I bet you never thought about it. Well, we're going to look at it. It's like, okay, but why? So they're looking at Medicare bundle payment programs for joint replacement, which we know have been very successful. Bundle payment programs are specific to Medicare. So then they say, well, would things that are not like that, would bundle payment programs specific to Medicare also translate to things that are not Medicare? Well, why would you expect that they would, you know, offhand, like bundle payment programs are a capitated form of payment. They have a specific intent, which is to control costs amongst Medicare patients. In other practice settings, where they're not controlling those costs, and there are other motivating factors and drivers, both good and bad, why would just everyone is just going to operate on the Medicare of platform that just it, it isn't commensurate with with how we understand physicians and humans in general to to work or hospital administrators to work. So they asked this question that I think is kind of a straw person question. And oh, lo and behold, um, the performance on Medicare bundled payment programs or the the use of bundled payment programs hasn't translated to better or different care in non-Medicare bundled payment programs. (laughs) Right. One thing that I will say is that they only have about eighteen months of their post-surveillance period? So they did a pre-post analysis. They split it at um, two thousand twelve to April or two thousand twelve to June two thousand fifteen for the pre-implementation, and then post-implementation is April twenty sixteen to December twenty seventeen. Best practice, you have like that washout that standard. Those who are interested, replicate that part, but. April 2016 to December 2017, it's really just slightly more than two years in total from sort of the process getting going. A lot of these uh, institutions have like an inertia that's like the Titanic when they try to back up the engine so they don't hit the iceberg and they just keep going forward. Like it takes time to get acclimated to the practice, to understand the nuances of the new paradigms. And then probably even longer for this putative spillover effect that they're looking to evaluate. So one thing is that there may not be enough time to see it. Their post-surveillance window might be not, not as long. And second, what, where we sit right now is five years after their data collection sort of ended, if you, if you will, like the data that they have to look at, not their data collection, but the data that's available for them to look at is now five years past expiration, so what was going on at the end of 2017 could be very different than what's going now in 2022. For those who are interested in econometrics, bundled payments, healthcare reform, it's it's definitely an article worth looking at. Um, and their analytic approach is, is, is quite good.
1: So no methodology on hold, but is it a problem looking for a solution or a solution looking for a problem? <laughs> And it's tough, you know, as a I think, you know, we use carrot and sticks as our methods of working. So, you know, here they're, it's saying, look, you have to do bundle payments. You have to make it efficient and we do a good job of it. So we've, we've shown that and whether or not that effect spills over, unless we're told that it has to spill over, I don't think it's going to make a difference.
0: Yeah. I think it's like its own lane and people are practicing differently in the context in which they're, they're working.
1: Which is true, I think, for everything we do, right? If we're told you can only do this, then we'll follow those lanes. And that's not. So we follow lanes well. Is that the take home message?
0: <laughs> um, yeah. And that, you know, uh, as we've discussed in prior podcasts, the the bundle payment initiative in and of itself has been transformative. Mm-hmm. It really has. Within it, the context, within the lane in which it exists.
1: <laughs> so check there. All right. On to the big finish now.
0: All right. We've got to go <laughs> fast.
1: Go. Tell me about percutaneous screw stabilization.
0: Okay, so this is um, the work of Yang and colleagues. There is an infographic, so check that out for added details. Uh, This is percutaneous screw stabilization of non-periacetabular pelvic lesions caused by metastatic cancer and multiple myeloma. Uh, These authors had previously described a minimally invasive percutaneous screw technique to help with... Pain control and fracture stabilization for patients with metastatic zone two lesions. Here they look to expand it to those primarily involving the sacrum and ilium. They have 22 patients. It's a classic single center retrospective epidemiologic experience, appropriately graded level four. Interesting outcomes for those who are working in this area. It's a nice idea. Again, Uh, work that we've done on patients with spinal metastases, the quality of life is impacted pain and function, you know, ambulatory function are are big limiting factors. That's at risk in these types of, uh, of metastatic or multiple myeloma lesions. They talk about lesions, but 15 of the 22 are actual fractures. So, they only have seven that haven't fractured and the indications for that, it could have been an impending fracture. So extrapolating this out to like, just basically they have a lesion. You should probably, you know, go ahead and do a percutaneous procedure on it. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to see it taken that in that light. And the other incredibly important point, really something for those who are interested in research or listening to the podcast to really look at. Uh, and in your own work as well, they have no surgical complications and no need for blood transfusions. And that's probably not translatable or generalizable. That's a modeling issue because they only have 22 patients. It's, they're not doing comparisons, but it's, it's an analogous to a type two error. You're underpowered to, de, to detect those things. So the fact that they weren't there, if you did it on a thousand patients, uh, I'm sure there'd be some complications. I'm sure if you did it on five thousand patients at a hundred different centers across the United States, I don't think everyone is just going to come out of this looking awesome. I think that you know, you just even by chance, these things would be expected to occur, and especially in this kind of higher risk population.
1: And small cohorts never an easy thing.
0: On the flip, All right? Tell me about predicting loss to follow-up in the Stability One study.
1: So big prospective randomized control trial at young patients undergoing ACL reconstruction by Firth et al. It's also free for 30 days. So please read it. They basically said, we're conducting this an interesting study and we're going to see who do we lose to follow up. And they basically said, okay, patients who are current or previous smokers, part-time employment or body mass index greater than 25 were predictors of being lost to follow up. Now the concept is good. We always want to know in our study, who's going to be lost to follow up. The interesting thing is, this is also talking about narrow windows, this is a narrow window. You've got young patients undergoing ACL reconstruction, and that's it. So if I'm doing a total study on a patient, you know, Medicare patient study over the age of 65 and total hip replacements, my loss of follow-up is going to be a totally different cohort of patients. So it's one of those things where, sure, it's good to have. What would be really interesting, actually, if they aggregated multiple level one randomized controlled trials. And said, these are our contexts for you know loss to follow up in young patients undergoing ACL reconstructions. Or well, let's look at loss to follow up in all different patient groups. You know, now granted, they could subsegment this into a multiple different studies and multiple different areas, but different ages, different surgical procedures, things like that. So could this be replicated for you researchers out there? Yes, it could be replicated. Right, loss to follow up in all different cohorts. Now we want to be careful and say we don't want to have words like loss to follow up in 55 year olds undergoing left toe surgery than having a whole categorization of different studies based on that. So be careful of the Me Too study in this one, because you really could have very, very, very sub-segments. They did point out that low socioeconomic uh, status was a common denominator on this one. Um, And I think something that they took as a took-home message is location from clinical site was a big loss to follow-up. And I think that's true for any study, you know, duration of time of follow-up and loss of time. So they did talk about moving patients, patients who've moved and they did try to oh. follow up with them. And again, that's the benefit of doing this in a prospective randomized control trial as opposed to retrospectively trying to find patients. So interesting there, but really narrow window. So go out there and do it in a broader group.
0: Yeah. And, and I like the we know that patients who are willing to participate in RCTs are their own kind of unique, category of individuals that they don't exactly represent the general population. So don't use this to inform loss to follow-up for general clinical care. I think this is very specific to the stability, the stability study and probably not beyond that, but if you are going to go beyond that, maybe just RCTs.
1: Perfect. Tell me about the utility of novel proximal femoral maturity index for staging skeletal growth in patients with scoliosis.
0: This is by Chung and colleagues um, from Hong Kong. This is, I think, the second paper in as many episodes where we're discussing looking at ways to gauge uh, scalable maturity. This is specific in the context of scoliosis. They uh, had um, 220 sets of radiographs to evaluate the Risser stage, Sander stage, distal radius and ulna classification and the proximal humeral ossification system, and then contrast this with their novel proximal femur maturity index, which consists of seven grades. The advantage here, uh, as they advertise, is that if you're getting scoli series, scoliosis radiograph series for patients, because you're looking to assess the progression of the curve, you're gonna capture the proximal femur and this way you don't have to expose them to additional radiation by X-raying their hands or other parts of the, the pelvis or, or what have you. So they, they make the case that this is kind of one-stop shopping and you can get all your determinations off of the SCOLI series and that's the, the advantage. The PFMI showed uh, good detection of the pubertal growth phase. Grade three indicates the peak velocity. Grade six indicates cessation of their seven stages. And they maintain that this can be used because you, you can avoid additional radiation to assess skeletal maturity, which in many ways informs the risk of progression of the scoliosis or if you're when you're going to decide on treatment options. So that is important. It also, as one would expect in scoring utilities that are measuring the same thing, it, it did correlate well with the other more traditional and classic systems. So... Um, Well done work Uh, for those interested in gauging skeletal maturity in scoliosis or in other manners, uh, definitely check it out.
1: And talking about areas of interesting repeat, we're talking about AI again in this next one. The
0: Lonex Safe Zone (laughs) is back
1: my favorite home place, let me tell you. So conversion of the sagittal functional safe zone to the coronal plane using a mathematic algorithm, the reason for failure at the Lewinic safe zone. I like math, but there were a lot of letters and a lot of numbers in this one. <laughs> that said, it was looking at another AI study. And again, the use of AI is very useful when it comes to radiographs, especially making measurements with regards to the pelvis and the hip spine syndrome. And it's looking at functional orientation. And basically we're moving more away from hard and fast rules when it comes to medicine and we want to individualize care. And I'm under the Freddie foo camp, of uh, the personalized ACL, you know, double bundle or, you know, anatomic ACL. So we're moving away from, this is the way that my mentors did it or my mentors mentors did it. I'm moving it to our patient specific safe zone. So AI was a tool in this case I'm using a mathematic algorithm to measure all these. Um, and it really came down to say that there was no safe zone for everyone. They used an EOS model first to model it and then they took a hundred patients and they did it robotically and then they looked at their functional positioning afterwards. So from a method standpoint, you know it's nice that they have a modeling as well as a in uh, so an in vivo an in vitro and an in vivo kind of scenario to kind of model all these different things. And it basically came down to the fact that there is no safe zone for the, there's no coronal functional safe zone to fill out a criterion for that, the setting there for the coronal stability index. But now that said, are a lot of patients placed in the same orientation and very few dislocations? The answer is yes. So it's saying there is no safe zone per se. So it's revisiting that Lewinic safe zone and poor Lewinic safe zone keeps getting a beating. But that said, most people still follow to a point and patients actually still do pretty well. So the total hip replacement is a pretty forgiving procedure. We still need to find the holy grail, right? Of where to put acetabular cups. But this is another, another nail in the coffin for Lewinic safe zone. So we'll keep beating it down apparently.
0: Yeah, yeah. Still looking for that uh, grail-shaped beacon that Dr. Winston and Dr. Piglet are controlling in the... <laughs> monastery or nunnery or wherever it is that uh sir galahad ends up in in the holy grail there we go clip clop clip clip, (laughs) (laughs) clop banging the coconuts together (laughs) and uh we didn't really put anything on hold this time after last last episode where like everything was on hold no whammies this time no no cases on hold so stay tuned for for next time maybe uh Maybe there'll be more controversy. Um, hopefully this was entertaining. We got the big Lebowski in there, research nihilism, a lot I think actually of uh, little inside scoops and pointers on ways to uh, fashion your research and situate it for success at JBJS or other high powered academic journals. Hopefully everyone will come back for um, part two of episode eight, the second half of April.
1: Looking forward to the fun.